Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And we're here to do a deep dive into the world of relational connection. Yes. And we've talked about connection and we've talked about therapists being connected as a way of doing self-care. And we've even talked about the village of the therapist. Um, But today we're really going deep with that. We have a really special guest um, who is an expert in the neurobiology of relationships and is a, a founding writer in the relational cultural theory world. And so we're going to we're going to go there momentarily. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about the problem of being disconnected um, as helpers. We, we know a lot more about that than we used to. We do. We know how isolating it can feel. We we've talked about how it feels to be um, unseen. Unseen. Yeah. So we've started compiling a list of the things that uh, we believe a well-supported therapist looks like. So we came up with a list. um, Here are a couple of things we came up with. Well-compensated. Yeah, paid well. Paid well. Working in a beautiful, comfortable space. Which we are in Deborah's office right now. It is beautiful and lots of art art on the walls and yeah. very whimsical. So it's a wonderful it has a space. Great energy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I love it in here. Rested with plenty of time away from work. Yeah, what a concept. Yeah, the importance of play and recreation. Right. And getting eight hours of sleep or or more. Um, experiencing a healthy body, and we've had a number of things to say about that, and we'll continue to. Present, alert, awake, focused. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we can be those things for our clients. Right. And enthusiastic about learning, enthusiastic and learning, having the learning switch turned on. Absolutely. And that ties into uh, in- energetic. That's so. I just finished reading uh, Amy's book, Wired to Connect. And when I read the part about energetic, I think about how you and I have been working to do these podcasts and how we're considering working differently in the future doing therapy. But the work we're doing always makes me feel energetic. Nice. Yeah. And it definitely turns on the learning switch. For me, it's like the learning itself is creating more energy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a good feeling. So, and and speaking of Amy, Dr. Amy Banks, who we're going to introduce in just a second, um, connected with supportive peers, people who nurture, people who get you, people who protect, who've got your back, people you can trust. <laughs> The, yeah, connection is, and uh, one of the reasons I love the book was it's a polyvagal informed book and connection is so critical to human health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're talking about the book Wired to Connect, right? Yes. Is that the one? Yes. yes. Yeah. So our guest is the author of several books. Um, one is Wired to Connect. Another one is Four Ways to Click. Um, and then most recently, she's written a memoir um, that we'll talk a little bit about as well. But let's welcome our guest. Welcome, Amy Banks. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. It's a, it was already nice to hear the summary that you had about, you know, a connected therapist or a balanced therapist. What do you need? What what does a therapist yeah. feed you? So, um, yeah, happy to be here. We're so glad you're here. And you've been a part of this relational cultural theory movement. I've associated you with those writers, Jean Baker Miller, um, Judith Jordan, that group at Wellesley. I have you 
in in that group in my mind. So really at the forefront of thinking about relationship very differently as something that is not just a woman's issue. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and I have to say, and I I don't mean to be overly humble, but you know, the the original crew was Jean Baker Miller, Judy Jordan, Irene Stiver, and Jan Surrey. And in fairness to them, those were really the original founding scholars. And I've been, you know, I would say almost the second generation, been around it for, you know, yeah. years plus. Um second so generation. At, yeah. yeah. Been at it for a good long time and really been able to bring, I think as a psychiatrist and somebody very interested in neuroscience, I've really been able to bring that lens, you know, as it was developing right, right to the work that they were already doing, the prophetic work that they were doing in predicting and naming the centrality of relationships in everybody's lives. Yeah. So this as you're saying, not just women, but everybody's lives. And so right. I, I feel like I got the the tag on, which is to bring the neuroscience information that supports that kind of yeah. to work. And that's been a real uh, gift for me, actually. Yes, you bring the neurobiology of connection. Yeah. And, and I think Tracy would say that's not a tag on that is right at the core of it all, right? It is, at least for me, knowing the neuroscience helps somehow make the ideas more important. I mean, it just makes them have, once I can see, oh, yeah, there's structure behind this, there's science behind this, it it always makes me more motivated to learn more about it and to really move into practicing those things that have been learned. Mm-hmm. And certainly that was my intention. At the same time, I, I want to just kind of name that the interesting thing for me has always been, you know, my ideas aren't different. It's just different than Jean's and Irene's and Judy's and Jan's. It's just that I, I was, I'm talking about them in a slightly different language. Yeah. It's the language of the dominant culture. Right. And so for right. me, it's always been the Trojan horse to get these very, you know, to me, kind of obvious ideas or, um, you know, that should be common sense, but to bring them to the dominant culture in a way that the dominant culture can maybe hear it and understand the ways that the, you know, the focus on separation and disconnection. Yeah you know, and standing on your own two feet really undermines everybody. So, I mean, so it's interesting. I don't, I don't rarefy it above what uh-huh. they said, but it's just, it's like I'm speaking a different, a slightly different language. And one yeah. that I think some people that would otherwise put it over there as other say, yeah. oh, it's science, you know, we got to listen yeah. to that. Right. So, yeah. That's me. I was raised in the dominant culture. So right. it it hooked me for sure. For sure, right. and you and, you yeah. focus on the body. I mean, you're you're a body worker, so ah, uh, yeah. So this this part speaks your language. Yes, true, true. Yeah. The, the polyvagal theory. This book is uh, if if you haven't studied polyvagal theory, this book, Wired to Connect, is one of the best things I've read because mm. it makes it so clear. But beyond that, it gives real important exercises on how to build better relationships. Mm-hmm. Practical stuff. Practical. Yeah. So before we dive into the, the models that we're talking about here, I want to just mention your memoir, um, mm-hmm. Fighting Time with Isaac Knapper. I read that one most recently. So I started with um, wired to connect. And then I read four ways to click and then the book with Isaac Knapper, which is your story. I mean, it's a, it's a decades long story. Yeah. Yeah. Going on 40 some odd years now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want me to say a little bit about it? I don't want to. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's the, you know, in a sense, Wired to Connect, you know, it's interesting, Wired to Connect came out in 2015 in uh, February, I think. And then um, I met Isaac Knapper, and I'll 
give the background of this, Isaac, in literally December of 2015. And so it was a a period of, you know, great transition and flux and introspection and a whole lot of things for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But for people that are listening, this book was a a book that was co-written by a fellow by the name of Isaac Knapper, who is now a very, very dear friend, who Mm -hmm. um, he and I are going kind of around the country now telling our story and using it as a platform to discuss some of the really difficult issues that face our country around racism, uh, wrongful connection. Isaac was a man um, that as a 17-year-old boy um, was wrongly convicted of murdering my father. We were both 17 at the time. Um, and, you know, it tells a story about trauma, <laughs> you know, yes. trauma. Um, it was certainly wrongful conviction, the need for social justice reform in a very, you know, what I like to say is, I think, gut wrenching, yes. <laughs> um, honest way. And but also about reconciliation, about healing, about how people can bridge profound and impossible differences to get to know each other. And in fact, you know, Isaac and I, you know, I really think of him on some level as my soulmate. I've never met somebody that feels so similar to me, you know, and here's this, you know, African-American man, a boxer, uh, you know, who's spent over 30 years of his life in prison. And the fact that we can get together and just be is, is really profound. It's been deeply personal healing transformative for me. Um, yeah. And it, and it the application of Wired to Connect for me, that's mm-hmm. what it mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Yes. I kept thinking about that in the background of your meeting this person. And I wondered, did you have to kind of overcome some, you know, relational barriers, so to speak? I mean, obviously this is a person that you thought for years and years had actually killed your dad. For 25 years, he was, in my mind, the murderer of my father, right? right? Um, You know, when the murder happened, I was very young. I was 17. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was from Maine. You know, like I always like to point out, you know, the whitest state in the union Okay, (laughs) used to be, you know, we didn't, there was one black um, uh, teenager in in my school of, you know, 2000 people. So we didn't have experience to violence of that nature to you know, uh, culture differences, all of that yeah. kind of stuff. So my family, yeah. you know, we, we took the line that this this young boy had done it, hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. And while I, you know, people always ask me, were you angry? Did you hate him? Did you know? And it was, you know, I have to say I was curious, you know, other people in my family, my brother, for instance, was who went to the trial and saw him be convicted and all of that was certainly, you know, very rageful. I didn't ever feel that. Um but I think it, that was as much shock and not knowing what to feel and what to do with it. You know, it was always sort of curious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, 25 years feeding that pathway of Isaac Knapper murdered my father, you know, trying yeah. to untangle that and yeah. get in this whole other reality, which was that, you know, the the justice system in many places is deeply corrupt it's certainly in all places is deeply racist because we are in America, you know, and that's that's what it is. And I don't mean that as a slight on everybody. I just mean that's who we are, um, you know. And so having to, you know, come to terms with the grief around now an unsolved murder. I mean, there were so many mm-hmm. layers to it. So, um you know, so it wasn't as a matter of simply, oh, you hated him and then you had to get to know him. It was really <laughs> tangling a, a Gordian knot, if you will, of experiences that right. it had really frozen in, in place in me. Frozen in place. That's a really good way to say that. And so then untangling that and being able to just meet him yeah. just face to face as a person, just as a, yep. as a person to get to know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was profound. And the person I got to know, you know, um, in fact, was kind of one of the kindest, most gentle human beings I've ever met. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you take this narrative that we were handed as a family in Maine, that this young beast, if you will, was somebody they needed to get. They've been trying to get him for a long time. You know, kind of the portrayal of this, you know, kind of out of control young black man versus the uh, human being that I met 
in yes. that, you know, initial meeting. Um, I mean, you know, you talk about their life lessons and then there are life lessons. And this was one of those just profound life lessons. And I was, of course, sitting there as not only, um, you know, the survivors, somebody had been murdered um, and, you know, kind of with an awareness of kind of the novelty of what we were trying to do, but also as a psychiatrist, you know, really looking at him to see what what are the effects of all of this trauma on him and to find somebody Mm -hmm. that still had an open and generous heart, you know, and had come to some level of peace, not not non-traumatized peace, but some level of peace with what had happened in his life it has been, um, uh, it's, it's still hard to find the words, you know, because it really, uh-huh. um, you know, I just keep saying transformative and that's really what it has yeah. been. You yeah, know? so much of this material is like that for me. It's hard to find the words yeah. to describe the the impact of the feeling of it. I know that it's so deeply profound and it seems like it should be obvious. Some of these ideas, right. And yet (laughs) it, it takes a while to let them sort of sink in and sort of understand in a different way. Yep. Yep. I agree. So, so this idea of the self, um, we think we know what that is. Mm -hmm. And psychology and psychiatry, you know, certainly we we think we are studying the self or understanding what the self is, but you have, you have different things to say about self from what, you know, mainstream theory would say. Yes. Yes. You know, because I really don't think of the self as a self. I don't think there is a self and I, you know, and by that, I want to be very clear because I have dear friends. One of my dearest friends is a kind of a, a leader in the IFS community. And, you know, yeah. I think the self that they talk about is a, you know, is a oneness with the universe almost self. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like this rarefied boundaryed kind of embodied, embodied kind of self. It's a, you know, to me, it's a, almost a spiritual self. Right. Um, But I think that, that what we know about whether you want to look at it through an energy medicine lens, or when you want to talk it through body work, you know, whatever, is that there aren't, you know, we like to pretend in this separate self culture that we are these little separate selves rather than that Mm. we're all, you know, kind of contiguous, you know, like, like uh, roots in a tree system, you know what I mean? And that we Uh have that kind of impact on one another. And I think the minute we begin to label ourselves as selves with all of the baggage that has brought to it, all of the Western baggage that gets brought to it, I think we do a huge disservice. And it, it, it is to me, it's a way that we disconnect without even knowing we're disconnecting. We set a boundary right? I'm here, you're there. And, you know, I mean, I think, as I recall, I opened the book with boundaries were overrated, you know, and I really Mm -hmm. that to be quite provocative, right? Because I knew that would be stick in the craw of people that are so invested in boundary as in, and listen, I, all of those things I, I put in the realm of differentiation, right? It is important that I'm clear about what I'm thinking in the moment, but it's also important that I'm clear about what I am perceiving from you and the way that there is a space that that, you know, that there's a space in there that is constantly fluctuating, right. Mm -hmm. In a relationship. And, and for me, that has always been a more honest way to imagine myself, if you will, that, yeah, there's some core here, but I, you know, it's whether maybe it's an aura, maybe it's whatever, but that we're interacting all the time, right? Like, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm watching both of your facial expressions, right? That's doing something to me, right? When you smile, mm-hmm. that tunes me in. Oh, that, you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel something, right? And, yeah. you know, most of us are just doing that unconsciously all the time. But when you really tune into it and you start paying attention to how your body literally shifts and your mind shifts in relationship all the time, you really you have to question self, right? That boundary yeah. of self. I wish, you know, there are times that I wish I was a self and I could just box myself in and just <laughs> the world, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't. <laughs> right. You are in flux. I am in flux. That's right. Right. We're in flux constantly, right? Constantly. And we want to be, we kind of want to not be in flux because flux and change are unnerving, mm-hmm. right? It's new yeah. all the time. And that can yeah. be either the excitement or life, 
or it can be the terror of life, right? Right. It reminds me of all of those models of cultural identity development that I had to teach in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they all start with a a phase where, you know, we're discovering our whiteness. So we are really going to pronounce our whiteness or our gayness or whatever it is. It's, It's like the beginning point where you define yourself and go, oh, this is me. You are not me. I am not you. I'm so different. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I totally remember those models. I mean, I taught them too, right? The, yeah. the, you know, how do you become a successful gay person, right? You know, yeah. which is you've got to identify with your group. And identify. That's yes. strong in that, right? And, you know, it's not that those things don't need to happen, right? You need, mm-hmm. you know, there's real uh, value and valence in seeing yourself in another person, right? I mean, if you don't, then you do risk, you know, a psychological annihilation, right? Of being isolated because of some profound difference that you feel or that you are in yourself, right? So there's real risk there. But, you know, I think at this point, we need to begin to question, you know, is it, you know, it's like anything, life isn't, life isn't linear, right? I mean, therapy isn't linear, you know, I like, I I often like to say when I, when I um, used to teach more to the, to the residents, you know, like, You'd like this to be, this is stage one, like trauma and recovery, stage one, safety and stabilization. Then we're going to go to recovery morning, and then we're going to go to, you know, reconsolidation. And the truth is, you know, we're readdressing traumas all the time. We're going back and we're redoing them. And we're, you know, and with another week, maybe we have another life experience that we fold into it. You know, it's more of like folding eggs into a meringue or something. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Rather than, you know, this linear, you add this, then you add this, and then you get yeah. spit out, you know, on the other side is, you know, right. actualized in some way. Right, exactly. And it's kind of amazing how many therapists or or helpers think in the linear way, think or think that they're separate from their clients or think that, and, you know, we've been taught, our culture has taught us to think that way. We are separate. Um, I am clinician. You are patient, uh, but that we're not influencing each other on a neurobiological level. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, the concept in, in RCT relational cultural theory is this uh, in therapy is mutual empathy. And it's not the idea that we just, you know, ping pong back and forth our, our favorite stories about each other or what have you, you know, it's not that it's really the idea that um, if the client, so a mutual empathic moment is when the client is sharing something and you feel it, right? Mm-hmm. You have the emp- empathy and then they feel you feeling it. If they mm-hmm. don't feel you feeling it, then oh. you miss the, 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 the nugget of healing, yeah. right? Oh. You know, just, you know, and naming it and then naming mm-hmm. that you feel it and having them be able to see you as somebody that feels what they're feeling, be it rage or hurt or sadness. You know, it's not just the positive things. I think that's one of the misnomers often with RCT is that we just want to be nice. And it's like, yeah, no, no, no. It's much more complicated than that. It's not just nice. It's clear, right? And you, if, if this person is suffering from the chronic disconnections that often exist in a separate self culture, which I think we can assume most people walk in the door with before they even tell you what's going on right? Then if you continue to lock them out from your real lived experience of them, then you, you've lost the point, (laughs) right? You know, you can pull them back into the human community by allowing them to see your responses, your, your, you know, and getting in there. And again, it's not all about self-revelation. It's not about, oh, I've had the same experience, but it's about being emotionally attuned and being able to verbalize and show it both physically and emotionally. Yeah. Wow. You're good at that. I think you show. Thank you. I think one of the things people don't know is client. I'm talking about clients Mm -hmm. that they don't know that there is something there that's feelable. You were talking about how you as the therapist need to feel what they're feeling, and then they can feel you feeling it. Right. But I think a lot of clients, patients don't know until it happens that they can feel 
somebody else feeling what they're feeling mm -hmm. because our society trains us to strive for independence mm -hmm. and you know i'm here you're there exactly. so i think the way you said it is beautiful yeah 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 and really staying in that flow state and helping people understand i mean that to me is part of the you know i think of you know, individual therapy as being cultural change, right? I, I you know, and RCT has always been like this, is it's not, it's not just what we're doing in the therapy hours. It's, it's, it's a revolutionary act to yeah. allow somebody back into how bodies actually work, how human beings work, right? And not, you know, staying in this mythology of division and separate self and so you know and and you can see we can you can look at it from this level to this level to right from politics to the environment right we're talking about every single level where this kind of thinking is killing us right and yeah. so you know the simple act of being whether you're doing body work or you know energy work or individual therapy the simple act of engaging in healthy relationship and teaching you know, teaching, you know, those how human beings actually work is revolutionary, right? And that's always been one of the tenets, I think, that that RCT has really wanted to sort of echo and and amplify in the world. Right. Like bell hooks, teaching to transgress. Yes. It's subversive. Yes. What we're doing when we teach people, when we engage with people in a in a therapy that's relational, it's subversive. Yes. Yeah. Exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> right? Thank goodness. Because we yeah. all have those little subversions these days, right? To feel like we're not getting buried whole in this culture. Oh. Right. There's so much there. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about what is relational neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Join us in a bit. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. This is Deborah and Tracy here today with Dr. Amy Banks in Massachusetts. And we were just going to start talking about what is relationship neuroscience or what is relational neuroscience? Yeah, so relational neuroscience is a term that I made up, coined <laughs> you know, okay. about 50 years ago. And, you know, what, what was happening at the time is that, you know, all of these imaging uh, studies were being uh, kind of uh, created and developed so that we could begin to actually see the, the human physiology of connection. 
quite quite literally, right, in real time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, most many people will be familiar with interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel's mm -hmm. group and, you know, the work right. that they've done. And, you know, they they have a very complex, you know, anthropological um you know, psychiatric, mental health, you know, they're, they're folding a lot of things in there. And what I really tried to do is to take the body of neuroscience around a relationship and, and really kind of make it useful to people. Uh -huh. Right. Um, and so I termed it relational neuroscience and I did what you should never do with neuroscience science was just to try to break it down into, you know, like in my book, I, I talk about the four pathways for connection as if right. they're four pathways, right? This is a much, you know, so I always have to say, so I sort of separated things in order to try to make it clear, but I always yeah. want to go back to, but what basically what I, what I did is I tried to take the, the science that was out there and make it user-friendly so that lay people and clinicians and whoever wanted to could actually use the science in some practical way. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, I divided it into these four pathways for connection. Um, and it represented kind of both um, uh, uh, kind of an experiential state of being in healthy connection, as well as, yeah. you know, kind of representing the pathways, the primary pathway um, that helps to create these states when you're in a healthy relationship. And so that, you know, basically relational neuroscience is, you know, the science of how we work in relationships. How's that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Perfect. And, and there's a whole chapter in, in the four ways to click book devoted to the rules of brain change. Mm -hmm. um, and the first one, the very first one is use it or lose it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so also um, in, so you're now talking about one of the things that I have in the book is what's called the care program. And it's kind of the clinical application um, and it, clinical, I don't mean necessarily just with therapists, but anybody who wanted to use it, the application of neuroscience and how you could use that to improve your relationships, but also improve your mental state, your biology, your physiology. Uh, Use it or lose it is that very early premise around neuroplasticity, which is the way that the human nervous system uh, grows and changes is that the more you stimulate one pathway, the stronger it gets, and the less you stimulate, the weaker it gets. I mean, it's use or lose it. It's as basic as that. And so if you apply that, right? So, you know, and I, and I always like to point this out. So imagine that we have these pathways for connection, you know, literally neuro, neurological pathways for connection. And then we are human beings dumped into this separate self, hyper-individualistic oh, right. culture. Yeah. That means those pathways aren't being stimulated in the ways that they need to, to grow, to be robust. So you take, right. for instance, your mirror neuron system, which is, um, you know, a series, uh, the, uh, a lot of detail here, but they're basically a, a system of being able to mirror another person's feelings, actions, and intentions in order to feel them, right? It, it, it's akin to empathy. Certainly it's a part of empathy, but if we, have this mirror neuros, neuron system that we want to keep really keen and sharply perceptive, but we dump these little beings into a separate self-culture where we say, yeah, you're not going to see the impact you have on me, mm -hmm. right? Because that's going to make me seem weak or, you know, less than, then yeah. we, we begin to disconnect the, the yeah. very pathways that we need to be, to have it, to be robust, to stay connected. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be very clear, the essence of relational neuroscience is that human beings need to be deeply embedded and connected in safe, healthy relationships in order to be healthy, right? Wow. Yeah, you can be, yeah. it makes you happier. Yes, it can provide meaning, but ultimately it is about, are you going to survive and not? And yeah. if you aren't, then you die. <laughs> right. right. We know that with Harlow's monkeys. We know that, you know, right. we know that with solitary confinement. We, you know, on and on and on. We have these experiments of what happens when people are isolated. Yeah. Right. Um, and we have now, I think, a growing body, my guess is, of literature that's going to be coming out over the next, you know, 10, 15 years about the impact of the pandemic and that isolation exactly. on people. Exactly. So, you know, the, 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 the literature on this is so robust. But yeah. when it goes into, when it floats up, a picture, a little piece of knowledge, right? 
around relationship and it goes up and it floats into a separate self-culture and it's got no receptor sites to bind to. So it dissipates. We keep reinventing the relational wheel over and over again, right? Dean Ornish did it 20 years ago. You know, people are doing this, but it doesn't stick because our culture is so sick. Wow. That's a, that's a great way to describe the, I think the reason why when we start reading about the neuroscience of relationships, it seems so obvious that we're almost like in a trance, like what, what am I, this is, okay, I knew that, I knew that, right. That's why I keep saying we've been duped. Yes, yes. We've been duped. Yeah, we we were like, we're given the playbook for a completely different game and we keep playing it, we keep using it, right? And it's it's killing us. It's killing us. Don't open our eyes and say, killing us. Right. Right. This is, I think, very much what um, Gabor Mate is trying to say right now Mm -hmm. when he talks about the toxic culture. Yes, absolutely. In which we live. And, you know, Tracy and I talk a lot about the toxic culture in which therapists try to be therapists. And so we're trying to do this very subversive thing, like we were talking about earlier, where we go into a room with someone and hopefully relate and acknowledge that our brains change each other's brains. Our bodies change each other's bodies. Right. 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 And how do you do that? Right. Like most clinicians are working in systems and yeah. systems created in the bigger system of separate self. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I've often pointed out that I have been in some profoundly, like I worked at the victims of violence program for four or five years at Cambridge hospital with Judy Herman and, you know, mm. people steeped in, you know, trauma. And even in that system, we couldn't take care of each other at, you know, it, I, I worked on a unit at McLean hospital when I first was out of residency that was based on the relational model. Literally it was based on it. Right. But that system, we could not protect ourselves from the overwork, from the underpay, from all of the things you talked about before, right? Mm-hmm. So you're embedded in these six systems. And if you're the one that's saying, hey, if you're that canary in the coal mine saying, this is not right, how we're being treated, right? Nobody ever had, you know, paid time for a support group for each other, right? How about that for novel? Paid mm. time. You get paid to take care of yourself because it's that important to the work you're doing, right? Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, think about how some of those things that you guys talked about in the beginning, right? How mm. do you systematize that? How do you put that into organize, organization? You have to absolutely believe in the power of relationship. Yeah. And what, you know, this factory level psychotherapy does to people, right? It's mind-numbing. And I think that became, you know, exaggerated in the pandemic because all of us were forced to both deal with the enormous pressure and fears as we're losing people, as people are getting sick, as we're terrified. Mm -hmm. Yet we were still, you know, frontline workers, sometimes on site, but certainly over Zoom, Mm -hmm. and to really appreciate what the toll of that was. Right. For right. people who, despite the pain that they were and we all know there yeah. are therapists who were losing people who were sick themselves, who were, you know, on and on. But yet there were no systems in place to try, you know, any more than there were in the, for the emergency room workers or the ICU workers. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. They were prepared. Right? right. But if you don't value relationship as the first, everything has to be built around that. Systems need to be built around that. And if they're not, they are going to be toxic for humans. Wow. You know, period. Period. That that kind of takes me to the poison of disconnection, yeah. which is, I think, what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a phrase that you use in the book, Wired to Connect, the poison of disconnection, which reminds me of condemned isolation, which you just Absolutely. mentioned. How does that poison shape our brains, our nervous systems? So when we're disconnected, because we are profoundly social animals and our entire physiology works maximally when we're in healthy connection, right? That's when you've got the smart Vegas firing, right? So that the people around you literally, you, you know, you literally stimulate your smart vagus nerve, right? Through facial expressions, through body language and all of that. 
leading you to feel calmer in the absence of that. And we can just take the smart vagus nerve right there. Boom. Let's, we don't even have to get into yet the mirror neurons or what it feels like to have no dopamine uh, perpetuating mm-hmm. your life and having to turn mm-hmm. to addictions. But if you just stay with yeah. that smart vagus, you know, we're really talking about flipping the switch from um, stimulation of a healthy calming system of interpersonal regulation to activation, overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. And that's uh-huh. just, you know, to me, that is like just the biggest no-brainer ever, right? Sympathetic, we know sympathetic nervous system, chronic stimulation leads to chronic uh, cortisol production, leads to impairment of the immune system, leads to sickness, leads to death. Boom. We saw, we, we, we knew that from the ACE study bazillions of years ago. Maybe it was mm-hmm. only 30 years ago. But the point is, this is so well-documented, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. there's no there's no arguing this at this point. Um, but that's the poison, right? Is it's literally you are you might as well just be putting your finger in a light socket, constantly, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Who would, who would do yeah, that? We're, but we're doing it every day, right? Maybe sometimes in our homes, right? Uh-huh. Depending yeah. on the relationships. Certainly, when we walk out the door and we try to be in this culture, right? In this environment. That's, that reminds me of something you said not too long ago. I think you you were working and you sent me a text and said, why would anybody do this alone? Right. So we started doing these podcasts and we did them uh, in a way that was very uncomfortable for us physically. So just the physical arrangement yeah. of, of the podcast studio. Yeah. And so after that first one, I said, we have to seek comfort. So seeking comfort, and we want to do that in our therapy practice as well. So we've decided to create Reconceive Therapy, and Deborah and I are not only going to be co-host for Reconceive podcast, but we're going to be co-therapist for clients. That way we always... We never had that idea that we're unseen. We always have each other Mm -hmm. to relate to. Mm -hmm. It just feels like it's going to be more comfortable, Mm -hmm. safer, and probably work faster for our clients. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. My God, right? Think of all that we take in when we're working with people, right? Like, you know, if you really watch your mind and your body in action, right, as you're you know, on that precipice, right? All the time. Do I say this? You know, you know, and, you know, at what point does that become overwhelming? And I, I love that. Like, what if you had somebody that really had your back and was, you know, you were tag teaming it, right? Uh-huh. You know, yeah. you know, but we, you know, I mean, we do to therapists what we do to everybody. We expect, okay, come in and fix me. Okay. You know, right. Yeah. Right. And, and go into a room, you know, where you are the person in charge and the door's closed and you don't have somebody that you can rely on. You can't, you yeah. know, turn to a colleague and make knowing eye contact. You're you're totally, you know, with this client, yeah. this patient who is in distress and nobody's backing you up. Right. Yep. In the work that you're doing. Absolutely. And so, you know, I've asked the question, why why don't we do more co-therapy? Uh-huh. Because I don't know if you remember, what, but uh, from training, if, if this was something you did, but in my training experience, we did co-therapy and yeah. it felt so good. Yeah. Well, I never, I've never experienced that, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we probably don't do it because we can't bill. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not cost effective. Right? It's, not, it's cost not cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. The system's not built for relationship. That's but right. I'm really looking forward to practicing together mm-hmm. because yeah. if you think about the mirroring system, the the client will be picking up on whatever is happening, whatever you're feeling as a therapist. Yeah. 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 So if you go into what we call a frenzy, you, mm-hmm. you, you go into sympathetic dominance with Deborah there. If I go into sympathetic dominance, she smiles at me. I'm like, oh, I'm okay. Exactly. Right. I mean, that, that's yeah. to me, you know, it also it's like that's why it, it always kind of works better to have two parents. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and 
Uh-huh. You know, actually, four parents would be even better in my my right. estimation. But <laughs> you know what I mean. So, like, you know, this 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 job of trying to nurture and, you know, there's nurture, care for, raise, heal, whatever. Yeah. This is really intense. <laughs> you know, it's it not really a one intense. person job. Right. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, you know, I love that. I'd be very curious to see how you guys do with that. And man, amplify, amplify that message. We'll be part of the revolution. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Interdisciplinary and um, yeah, caring, caring more about the experience that we're having than about the money that we can generate in the hour. Right, right, right. Every it, it, it seems to me as if doing it that way, every session will be healing for everybody in the room. Well, right, exactly. You know, Jean Baker Miller, one of her first, one of her, you know, not first, but one of her uh, kind of quotes that always stuck with me is that in a relationship, if how is it, if both people aren't growing, no one's growing, oh, right? And to really appreciate that, right? If both people are growing, no one's growing, right? This idea of unilateral growth is, again, part of the mythology of I have this wisdom and I can impart it on you so you can get bigger and stronger. And I, quite frankly, don't think that helps anybody. I don't think it it puts too much pressure on the therapist, but it also, you know, builds very unrealistic expectations for a patient or a client, right? I mean, it's crazy making. Okay. So, yeah. so then the whole notion we were talking about earlier about how we we do need to feel and be impacted in the moment by what our clients are talking about, that, yes. that's very practical. Absolutely, right? It's very practical. Yeah, because I, I most, to, yeah, I mean, you know, and again, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're both therapists, so you know that lived experience of being stimulated by, you know, by the total body experience of your client and what that generates in you. And yeah, the physiological arousal, but also then the popcorning of ideas and thoughts and associations, you know, how you sort through which lane to take. And I mean, it's really complicated, right? You know, and yeah. if you don't describe it like that, you know, to young therapists, I think it's easy to think that 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 is happening is me being overwhelmed or me being incompetent or me being, yes, you know, not able to deal with my own emotions with all of this, right? right. No, this is hard. <laughs> when you are open, yeah. it's hard. Yeah, I think at at the end of your book or near the end of Wired to Connect, I love the exercises you give where you break emotions into their fragments is not the right word, but their place on the spectrum. Yeah. And and you ended one like sadness with gloom and despair. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. that moment, I thought, well, she must have watched Hee Haw growing yeah. up. Cause- <laughs> That's a so gloom, despair, and agony on me. Uh, but, but but the exercises you give, I love because they require people to use their imagination. Imagine when you felt this way, where do you feel that in your body? Which is a great exercise for everybody, but for beginning therapists, because then they would have a clear recognition, I think, of what they're feeling and what it is they're feeling from their client. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I thank you. Thank you for kind of pulling that out because I think you're absolutely right. Right. This, this human experience of what it's like to feel another person can be also deeply overwhelming when you haven't, you know, again, you haven't gotten the appropriate user manual of even how you work, right? You know, so these are the things that happen when I feel somebody else, and it can be very deeply dysregulating. It can be, you know, but to, to like, right, if you're feeling, if the client is feeling sadness, but that's touching off a place in you that goes more to profound grief, right, then you you have a physiological arousal that's akin, but the meaning making that you will put onto it and to help the client understand is not necessarily accurate, right? So the fine tuning 
of those systems and being able to be in the conversation about it, you know, even to say, oh my God, that, that made me feel so sad, you know, and even, you know, maybe the client says, well, yeah, I wasn't that sad, <laughs> you know, whatever the, the correction is, but the, the, uh-huh. that kind of fine tuning, life is about fine tuning all the time, <laughs> you know, constantly we're, we're yeah. in flux, we're in constant flux. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no, there's no set fixed uh, way of being. It, it moves all the time. Moves all the time. Right, right, right. Right. Jelly inside. Right. I mean, and we want to be like, you know, steel. We're We're telling ourselves we should be steel. Right. 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 And and what you said a moment ago about being profoundly dysregulated, perhaps, by our clients, mm-hmm. um, that just seems so important for us to pay attention to at the end of every session, because we might walk out of the office and go, I just did a thing. <laughs> but we didn't just do a thing. Yeah, right. We, right. we entered a relational system. Exactly. That affected our whole body. Yeah. Yes. You know, you know, it reminds me of is, you know, when I get Reiki treatments, for instance, you know, one of the things that the Reiki practitioner does at the end is sort of, you know, clear those connections, clear that. And, you know, what if we had sort of a respectful way to both appreciate that we've been deeply engaged, you know, physiologically with another human being and in five more minutes, or 10 minutes, we're going to be deeply engaged in someone else. But usually we do nothing to, you know, even symbolically kind of move the residue along or ground ourselves. I mean, some people do, you know, whether you take the five Mm -hmm. minutes and you deep breathe or whatever you do, but, Mm -hmm. you know, to find maybe a ritual that allows you to put, you know, some sort of level of closure around that human experience. Right. Yeah. Um, and and it, the other thing that I think that it allows is it allows therapists to appreciate the wear and tear of the work, how hard it is, right? You know, yes. um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean it in an appreciative way, right? Yeah. You wouldn't expect a surgeon to do surgery 12 hours a day and then be like, eh, no big deal. I'll go blah, right. you know, right. it's like cutting into bodies for God's sakes. Right. You know? Yeah. The wear and tear. I, I love how you're speaking about all of this. And, and I love that we're, we're hitting at these implications, these deep um, physiological energetic implications right. for, for what we do all day. And I know we're running short on time. So um, I want to just mention to the listener again, that you can be read <laughs> in, in a variety of books, um, the wired to connect book, um, four ways to click, and then those are the same. Recently, I want to just I need to are okay. So people, okay. So people don't order both. The hard copy was okay. Four ways to click, and then the uh, the paperback was wired to connect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I noticed a lot of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, good. Yeah, but then also fighting time um, with Isaac Knapper and. Um, where where else would you like for listeners to reach out to you? Do you want to, Do you have a website you want people to? I have a to website, amybanksmd.com, and that's going to have um, any uh, about to update it, but any um, ongoing, you know, upcoming trainings, speaking engagements, both with Isaac, but also myself individually. Um, oh, it's good. got uh, mm-hmm. information. Got, it's got the care assessment. People can go on it, take the care assessment, um, right. and think about how they might access the care plan. Use their own neurophysiology Perfect. to kind of get healthier, both relationally and physiologically. Wonderful. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And sure. listeners, uh, email us at reconceivetherapy at gmail dot com. Thanks, Amy. Thank you Thank so you much, Amy. Both of you is really nice spending the time. Take care. Awesome. Okay. Bye, Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.